0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. I'm super pumped to join us today. today we have Dr. Daniel Hawk, um, His Sir and Highness as well. Um, he's a professor of Old <laughs> Testament and Hebrew at Ashland Theological Seminary. And Today we're going to be talking about the problem of the violent God and divine violence and like what Dan kind of thinks of the whole topic. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks uh, for asking me uh, to, to join you again in, in this important conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in case you didn't know, about a year ago, we did an interview talking about like divine violence. Um, And what we did there is kind of like look at like specifically like breaking down his book, um, and the different views and whatnot. And today we're going to try to get a little more conversational um, and really just try to understand like divine violence, like how we can respond to it as Christians and whatnot. So, yeah, that's kind of the agenda for today. So to start off, Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do?
1: Okay, well, um, I am... Uh, as as you said, Zach, I'm, uh, I teach Old Testament. I'm a recovering academic, uh, card carrying member of Academics Anonymous. Hello, <laughs> my name's Dan. I'm an academic. Anyway, so I uh, I teach at uh, Ashland Theological Seminary in Ashland, Ohio, um, in the midst of the largest one uh, one of the largest Amish populations in the United States. So uh, it's great to be in Ashland. Uh, it's where the Amish come for fun and. Uh, live here and uh, just have the privilege of teaching um students and being part of a great community of theological educators
0: yeah that's super cool um i feel like we talked about this before but do you know um i've been in like the middle of like amish country ohio and there's this restaurant called like their their dutchman that's like an dutchman. Amish that i love um you know that place
1: i do i've been there and uh That's one of many. There's actually a a little out of the way place that that I like even better in a place called Mount Mm -hmm. Hope called Mrs. Yoder's Kitchen. So shout out to to that place, which is also really good. But off the off the beaten thoroughfares. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah i'm sure my listeners aren't tuning in to like learn about like amish <laughs> restaurants in the middle of ohio um yeah. i don't think that's what people came for today um right. what we did come to talk about was like the problem of divine violence mm-hmm. um so to start off at the end do you want to talk about like what is the problem of the violent god
1: so we have an hour and a half right
0: Yes,
1: sir. Hour <laughs> <laughs> out. No, I, I, I think there. It's such a huge uh, issue, and so I, I, I think it's, it's uh, a problem on, on, on many fronts. Um, one of the fronts is uh, biblical. Uh, how, how do we reconcile uh, a God who, in, in the Old Testament, utilizes, gener, uh generates, endorses violence um in 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 many cases uh and and in some cases massive violence how do we reckon how do we reconcile that image of god with the image of god that we see um in the person of jesus christ who uh tells followers to to love enemies uh to turn the other cheek um so this this teaching um, this 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 portrait of Jesus as, as God in the flesh, Jesus is is not terribly violent. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there's the time when he throws the, the over the, the the tables of the money changers, um, but uh, for the most part in the New Testament, um, we really have a, a a very strong impulse toward. Towards peace and rejection uh, of the use of violence, so that that clashes significantly with the Old Testament portrait, and that that's a that's an issue that Christians have been dealing with all the way back from uh, to the beginning. Um, and there was even one Christian, uh, very early on, one Christian teacher, or actually a Gnostic teacher, who basically said, "You know, they can't be the same deity." The mm-hmm. The God of the Old Testament uh, is brutal and savage and violent. The God of the New Testament is loving, good, um, and, and patient. They just can't be the same deity. The church rejected that vigorously, but the, the problem remains. How, how do we uh, think through as Christians these two canonical depictions of God as both true? Uh, and and true representations, so uh, that's one. And then the there's the ethical problem. Um, death is is counter creation. It's destructive rather than constructive. Um, what do we do uh, with uh, a god who, to put it very plainly and in the most kind of Graphic terms, what do we do with a God who commands or seems to command the slaughter of of innocent people? Um, some people would already kind of begin to challenge my word innocent. But how do we what do we do with a God who, for example, in in Egypt, kills uh, firstborn children uh, in uh, in the book of Joshua, if we read it um, just right across the grain, uh, leaves no one alive who breathes. So, I mean, Abraham's question with God before God uh, destroys Sodom and Gomorrah is 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 the ringing ethical question that uh, really niggles at, at, at our faith. And that is, you know, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Uh, so that's, there's that ethical question. And then finally, uh, there's the question that comes in from the ways that Christians have used these violent portraits of God to sanction and justify Christian violence. Uh, and, and that's a problem. And uh, actually that really came to the fore Uh, During the uh, the 18th century, when uh, people were criticizing Christianity and criticizing Christians at the end of 100 years of horrible, brutal, savage religious wars in Europe. And uh, in the 1600s, in the 1700s, people just looking back at that savagery, which was justified in some cases biblically. Uh, in most cases, biblically and theologically. And just to ask the question, doesn't a violent God produce violent followers? Uh, so you are people who, who claim to believe in the Bible, who claim to follow what the Bible says. And the Bible seems to uh, give a lot of, of instances where Christians are justified in killing others um, in the name of God. So uh, how, how do we, it's a problem because of the Christian legacy of violence and the way that that uh, violence has been grounded in interpretations of scripture.
0: Hmm. Well, thanks for that, Dan. And I love how um, you brought up, there's so many questions here. Like it's not like it's just, it's not like it's just we're interpreting one passage and there's like three solutions or like which one of, these, one of these three is like the right way? And that's the end of the discussion. But you talked about how like like in our theology, in our ethics, and the way we live our lives, like there's so many um, important like sub questions within like how we understand this problem of a divine God. So it's almost like how do we even start to start to think about like thinking about this topic? Um, so obviously, like, I mean, you're only like 35 or something like that, I'm sure. But you've <laughs> thought about this project for a while. So like, mm-hmm. can you summarize like your view when we're looking at like the problem of divine God? Of a, of a violent God, and then they explain how it's different?
1: Yes, sure, thanks. Um, well, I'll put, I'll put a few stakes uh, in the ground, and then we can, we can go from there. So um, one of the ways I, I, I approach this issue biblically is that uh, I, I don't see the Bible providing answers uh, per se. I think most of, of what people are, are wanting to do as they read through these texts is just say, well, what's the answer? I mean, how can I pull all of this together in a rational, coherent way? Um, and I think the nature of scripture is such that it, it really doesn't provide us hard and fast answers. So I'm not looking to give some kind of comprehensive, here it is, here's the last word, on on uh, how we should understand God's violence. Um, instead, I I approach Scripture. My sense is that Scripture number one um, wants to wants to generate a conversation, a way of thinking. It wants to shape our vision about how to live faithfully uh, as disciples of Jesus Christ in a world of violence, and so. I think that's why there are so many uh, places in, in scripture on this issue where the dots don't connect. And, and it's just hard really honestly to fit everything into a particular box. So um, the Bible is a the, the purpose. I see the purpose of the Bible is, is shaping Christian discernment. So as we gather together as Christians, um, and I put it this way in the book. I think the Bible's more concerned with uh, getting us to think biblically about violence than to provide answers uh, for violence. And and I come to that. And this is number two. I come to that be, uh, from my uh, my experience and work as a, a narrative critic, uh, someone who studies narratives and how they work and um I, I, when I look at the Bible, you know, we, we we tend, in a sense, to want to systemize, systematize the truths of the Bible, kind of wrap them up into principles and and, and rational structures that that pull all of everything together. Um, and it's it's tough to do that in a way with the Bible because the Bible doesn't start with expositions and principles. Both testaments start with narratives. Um, it's a way of saying start here. Um, the the starting point for understanding who God is, and what God is doing in in the world, is conveyed through narrative, uh, not through exposition, and systematic principles and rational categories, and that's that's really important. I mean. Again, think of the the Old Testament begins with a huge story, goes from Genesis through Second Kings, and then it rewinds, and you get you get most of the same story from a different perspective. The New Testament begins with four narratives, so beginning with narrative is a way of saying this is this is uh, these are the texts. This is the way that um, we shape that the Bible wants to shape your vision about God and how God is at work. So interpret everything you read after these narratives in light of the narrative. Start with the narrative first and then interpret all of the other things, the laws, the prophecies, the the wisdom literature, the epistles, everything in light of the narrative. And that's so what does that do then? Um, And why does that shape our thinking? And I would suggest that narratives, they just work very differently in conveying truth than um, propositions and principles and paradigms. Um, Narratives uh, in a sense are as much experienced as they are read. The way narratives work is by pulling us into a world or a vision of the world and inviting us to experience that world, walk around that world, think about that world, and then we come out of that reading experience, presumably with some some new vision, some sharper vision about how to to live. So that's why uh, I focus exclusively on the narrative, and and particularly on um, this kind this narrative thread that. Uh, Creates an arc uh, at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis with creation, and ends uh, in in Revelation with uh, a renewed creation. So, in a sense, everything that we read in between that arc and in our own lives is situated within that arc. So that's that's one one piece, um, and so. Uh, that's why, number two, I, I, just, I just aspire to read the story. Uh, and I read it not only with attention to what it says, but how biblical narrators are shaping the story in order for us to uh, encounter um, the, 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 the living reality of the God who uh, is at work in our own time, just as God was at work in ancient times, so um, so, just reading carefully, paying attention not only to what's said but uh, how that story is shaped. And then number three, and uh, maybe maybe two more two more things, and then we'll uh, go on from there. Um, mm-hmm. Number three, uh, the Bible, I believe, uh, following uh, a number of Uh, prominent Old Testament theologians, the Bible presents a relational God, uh, a God for whom relationship is fundamental to who God is and how God uh, interacts with creation. So God could do everything uh, all by himself. Doesn't need anybody, but chooses from the very beginning to work with human partners. So what God does on earth, God does relationally beginning with Adam, right? I've, I've given you dominion. So you're my image bearers here. So I want you to, to do the work on the ground and, and uh, exercise that, that beneficial uh, leadership and care of creation. Um, and, and, when human beings defy God and, and just create a God-awful world full of sin and violence, God doesn't stop relating. Uh, and that's, I, I think that's the big story that, that begins with, with Abram. Uh, God chooses to redeem and restore and renew creation in partnership uh, with a human friend. Uh, and it begins with Abram. Uh, and it extends, as you know, uh, when Abram becomes uh, Abram's descendants are in Egypt, and they become a great nation. God um, uh, uses uses the nation of Israel, forms the nation of Israel, births the nation of Israel to be God's agent of renewal in creation. So it's a partnership, and and the, and that means then uh, that. Uh, that has some consequences for God. I mean, for God to step into a world of sin and violence, I should say violence, for God to step in, to step into a world of violence and, uh, in a sense, use a, hu- a human community, a human group, uh, as agents within that violence, I think the, the biblical testimony, the testimony of the Old Testament is God gets drawn into that violence. Uh, and it's it's not that God wants to do it, that God chooses to do it, that God just gets angry. Uh, but it's the consequence. So if, if God, for example, chooses Israel as, as his sole possession, I'm, I'm for Israel, I'm for you no matter what then that means that God um, is, is inevitably drawn into defending his friends, uh, promoting the welfare of his friends. Uh, so it just gets really complicated. And then the last thing, number four, is uh, I think we tend to have, we bring with us into the reading of this story Many of us stereotype. I see it in my students all the time when when they enter enter into the class. I mean, it's this. God is so angry in the Old Testament. We have mm-hmm. this idea that God is so angry, and God is angry because uh, people are disobedient, and so uh, God judges disobedient um, by getting at you when God is angry by uh, by violently uh, responding to that disobedience. So, what? What my reading suggests uh, of the Old Testament is that we've got to disentangle these three elements. You know, God's violence uh, is and God's wrath and God's judgment. So, so God is uh, is said to be angry, but when we read carefully in the Old Testament, God's anger does not always uh, result in violence or judgment sometimes it, it, it results in mercy. God is uh, sometimes violent, for example, at the flood, but is not said to be angry. Um, so you know God God judges, but God does not always judge violently. So I think these these three elements that are so, wrapped up in the way that people sometimes, or people see the God of the Old Testament, I think really need to be disentangled if we're really going to see that biblical testimony more clearly.
0: Mm. Well, I I really appreciate you laying this out, Dan, because I think it helps when we look at these questions that we're going to look at today to really think about these principles. Like when we're looking at questions about like, the Canaanites, like the flood or whatever, like you're going to think about the ideas of like, well, one, like God doesn't necessarily like look to provide answers through the Bible. Like it's not like a little like handbook where you have all your like theological questions just answered. So that's, you're kind of going to rule that out when you approach it. Also like showing that like you're looking at the narratives, which I think is super cool. And something that I never really thought about before that like the old Testament and the new Testament begin both with narratives. Um, so that's super cool. And then how the Bible presents a relational God. I'm just going through your principles. And then mm-hmm. the God judges, but it's not always going to be like violent or like an angry judgment. So I think these principles are super helpful. And maybe you want to talk about like how are these principles going to inform the way you look at the questions that we're looking at today?
1: Um, yeah, so, so I, I guess um, – The way i think about this is uh it's kind of one of these things where i read through and i tried to listen and and to develop some some ideas and then um then i've got my sense of how that works and i come back in so yeah
0: um
1: and and reread it so uh it it, it's just fascinating to me, uh, this this is such sophisticated, beautiful, complex, inspired, and inspiring literature. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it just if you really read it and stay with it, it it really um, it really transforms the reader. Um, so, I, I guess what I'm saying is the way that it informs me is that I, I really see these narratives not just grabbing hold of our minds and our intellects, but grabbing hold of our hearts and shaping us into the image of a God who deeply cares, deeply loves. I mean, the first self-disclosure of God is in in Genesis 30, uh, excuse me, Exodus 34, six and seven, when when God talks about himself as um, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and goes on from there a little bit. But so, you know, the the language that the Bible uses to engage us with uh, the God that that we all um, acknowledge and follow and aspire to live for. um, The language that the Bible uses to talk about this God is predominantly emotional rather than intellectual um, and one of the things that it, it, again that that this does for me when I approach this issue is is that it reminds me that in my own culture we really prioritize prioritize the intellect over the emotion
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's it and I just see that I just see the, the genius of the Bible in that it goes for the heart because you know sometimes we can convince people something intellectually but it doesn't really grab them. But on the other hand, if if you've got people's heart, that's that's going to motivate them to to act in in particular ways that are deeper um, and more intense than intellectual knowing. So I'm kind of over all over the map. I'm not sure I, I uh, <laughs> answered your question. It was a, it was a good one, but maybe you can kind of steer me into some spe- specific directions.
0: Yeah. So when we're looking at this debate. <clears throat> perhaps um one of the things you're trying to like emphasize here is that we're not just like doing like an intellectual like intellectual like practice here We're answering questions of like what what happened with like the canaanites or like in the exodus or things like that um but when we're looking at the bible looking at a narrative that like is transforming not just like our minds but like our heart our hearts and our souls and that's going to move us as well and we have to keep that in mind that we're not just doing like mere like intellectual like practice or like playing here but there's a lot more um happening when we are like looking at questions like divine violence yeah
1: yeah and our and our our interpretations and our encounters can also shape us negative negatively and in some ways that you know take our hearts and 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 actions i mean our hearts may be in the right place but our actions may may Mm -hmm. be misplaced And that's i think that's why we need each other uh to and i think that's why the Bible invites us into a community of, of believers who are trying to figure this out together so that nobody has the, I got it. Everybody mm-hmm. follow me. I've got the true interpretation. I know what to do. It's We all know that life uh, and faith are a lot more complex and we need each other mm-hmm. uh, to help us to figure out how to live this out in a yeah. really violent world.
0: Well, that's, that's super great. Um, and the, what I'd love to do now, Dan, is like talk about moral intuition like you can see like our moral intuitions are super prominent especially in like today's world like you can look at like even the reaction of like i think about when like russia invaded ukraine way back like a year ago now and there's just a massive reaction saying like this is morally abhorrent morally wrong um and things like that so when we come to study like the old testament and the violence here um that same moral intuition is there. Like I know a lot of people that read about like the Canaanites or the Malachites or whatever, and they're like, ooh, that just sounds terrible. Um, so, and there's like a moral intuition there. So, like, what do you think? Like, what's going to be the role of moral intuition uh, when we look at like the, the debate over like the violent God?
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, and I guess I would ask: um, is is there an innate moral intuition or uh, or and to what extent if there is how is that moral intuition shaped by the communities that we're a part of um how how we're taught um Mm -hmm. the categories that we bring in um history experience all of these things so um this this is I think where it gets really complicated um, for. like it just be be just be flat out for for people like me who are old white guys, um, because uh, you know we I can look back I mean and you know we 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 had a we had a century um, in 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 you know in the 1900s that there was just a lot of massive violence. I mean, really, genocidal violence. We look at the Holocaust or, or some of the other really kind of mass killings, and 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 you know, and we all recoil at the horror of those things and say, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that just cannot that that cannot in any way reflect um, any kind of. Uh, there's just no justification for it, and so. So in a sense, we're, we're we're coming out of centuries where, um, really, violence has been deeply justified by by religious people and is being justified by religious people. And so I, you know, not only do we have to deal with with the sense that this violence is abhorrent, but it it's even even more so. The fact that that a lot of this violence has been done by people who claim to be followers of the Prince of Peace, uh, and who find ways to justify that violence. So, so all to say that we, we 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 kind of bring this moral intuition in. Mm-hmm. And and we're all, you know, I, I would say it's it's shaped in certain ways. Um, and but it's a, it's a lot more subtle. So we can all say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really against all of this. I'm, I mean, it's, it's just bad. Killing people is bad. Destroying the earth is bad. Um. Uh, but in a sense, and here, here I, I you know, my, my, I, I go deep into this Christian, into the Christian tradition and say, you know, a lot, uh, you know, I've got, A lot of unfinished business and and perspectives in my own life that are not um, that are not uh, I'm I'm just not acknowledging. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what what do I do, for example, um, with uh, you know being part of of a nation? that was established on, on massive violence against the indigenous inhabitants.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, why, why am I so quick to say, well, that violence is bad, but I don't really recognize kind of the own, kind of the sublimated violence that shapes a lot of my own thinking, um, perhaps in, in some ways that I'm not aware that deals with with my past, but that gets off into, into other territories, but... Um, yeah, I guess I would just say, I mean, how, how do you think? How do you think moral intuition is formed? What's, what's your sense of that? I'm,
0: how is moral intuition formed? Yeah,
1: you know, you're thinking you have an idea about moral intuition. So what do you, you know, kind of what's generating that for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think moral intuition, like we all have it. Um, and it's almost, I mean, I'm kind of stuck in like, the culture I grew up in and the people around me. And, you know, we all have pretty similar moral intuitions. I mean, obviously there's things that are different, but things like um, killing people, like that's wrong, stealing, (laughs) that's wrong. Um, Helping others in need. That's a good thing to do. And we kind of have this moral intuition um, in this question of like, well, where does it come from? Well, that's a really good question. I don't know. Um, Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at is, is I think it's very like, maybe culturally dependent moral intuition. I don't know. I haven't really studied in depth the intuitions of like people on the other side of the world. Um, But I do think there are some like common threads of moral intuition that are shared um, even across different cultures I've interacted with. So yeah, it's tricky to think about like moral intuition. Like is it shared? Is it diverse? And then how's that going to like affect this debate in old Testament violence? Well, I think we could kind of go in and think that like, we should have an intuition that like genocide would be wrong. Um, should that like override any other like opinions we'd have in the debate? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it, it sure does. And I, I would even uh, go so far as to say, I mean, if I'm again thinking of this, this issue in, 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 in terms of the biblical vision, I mean, we, all of us in a sense we are created with a moral sensibility. Uh, but we live in a world that has warped that sensibility. So there's something in us, you know, that on the one hand says yes, it's it's right to do these good things, and and uh, uh, but but the good and the evil um, can get so nuanced by culture and mm-hmm. and and by the culture in which we live, so that we can say, well, this violence is good and this violence is bad. Mm-hmm. So. So is is the violence that the Ukrainians are are engaged in right now to defend their homeland is that good is that bad uh, and and as you said you know our, our, our culture really shapes that in in some significant ways which is to circle back to to one of my main points which is why it's so important that we marinate in scripture that mm-hmm. we marinate and saturate ourselves with Uh, A biblical way of thinking, uh, a a biblical vision that that can help us to sort through, um, you know, how how that moral intuition has been shaped in uh, warped ways uh, and how that moral intuition can rise to help us to align ourselves with what God is doing uh, in, in the in the in the work of renewal in our world in this present moment.
0: Mm. yeah that's super helpful so thanks for that dan so what i'd love to do is start to like look into the biblical narrative a little bit here um so obviously if we think about the beginning of the biblical narrative we have the creation of the world the creation of adam the creation of eve then we have the fall um and you move into the flood and i know i'm giving like a very very like two sentence cliff notes version here because there's a lot happening at once um looking at this general pattern of like you talk about like ruin and remaking of creation. Um, like what is this and how's that going to like impact your approach to understanding violence in the old Testament?
1: Well, I think, I think the, I mean, the key thing is, is that, that God, um, when human beings defy God, when human beings, uh, step across the line, eat the 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 fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when human beings decide that they can be like god um that they can make moral decisions on their own apart from the the claims of the creator um then the the world descends immediately into violence right so the first thing you know the first thing we have we see after eden um is um you know, after Eve giving birth, but the really the, the first longer story is a violent story. One brother kills another brother. Um, so, and, and, and by the way, um, so God's got God responds to that when Cain kills Abel. But I, again, I think it's significant that God does not respond by killing Cain. <laughs> Um, there's, there's not that eye for eye, but, but God's response is merciful. Um, he banishes Cain and Cain says, Oh, I'm, I'm scared. Somebody else might kill me. And, and, and God says, well, then I'll, I'll put a mark on you. Kind of don't quite know what that means. I'll put a mark on you so that nobody does that. Uh, so there's, there's mercy that comes out. And, and what I would suggest that, you know, once, once human beings Decide for themselves. So we we have this Genesis one and two, this vision of of creation as God uh, intended it for be for, for it to be, how to live and flourish in a blessing uh, in the blessing of God, and we just didn't want to have any part of that. We wanted we wanted to do it ourselves, and uh, we just create this this violent world. So I would suggest that the whole rest of the, the biblical narrative from that point on is God relentlessly um, seeking to renew uh, not only humanity but renew creation uh, you know the the, I, the there's a whole creation theology in the Old Testament that, that keeps reminding we human beings that we're not the only creatures God cares about Um you know, there, there were creatures here before we were, uh, and, and we were set on this planet to care for the planet. Uh, to, and so, you know, we, you know God's, God's problem, in a sense, is how to renew a world with people who are just so mangled by sin and anger and violence and defiance and narcissism. Um, and that's the rest of the story. God pursuing, um, pursuing, or 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 not giving up, uh, but pushing forward in the renewal of creation. Which then tells us, who are readers of the Bible, um, that's what we should be involved in as well. Um, we we need to be involved in in renewing. Creation in the various and and renewing humanity, participating in God's work in all of the myriad places that we find ourselves in, easy and difficult.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. So thanks for that, Dan. So how does this like specific like idea approach, like, for example, the flood um, where we're talking about like ruin and like human wickedness, um, like humans messing up. And if you read the flood narrative, like humans really mess up. but it's not humans yeah. that caused the flood according to the flood narrative. It, it's God who brings the flood. Um, and it's kind of – it's almost like humans are screwing up. Let's finish that. Um, yeah. By – in some people that may be, like, very skeptical of biblical claims, people say, look well, by just, like, killing everyone um, just to remake it because God mm-hmm. messed up, you know? Um, and I'm just trying to, <laughs> yeah. it's not what I believe, but I'm yeah. just trying to like put yeah. that out there because you, you hear something like that, I'm sure. It's sure. Um, so like, sure. how do you approach like this idea of ruin and remaking specifically when we look at, say, the flood?
1: Yeah, um, well, I do think in, in a sense, it, so Genesis 1 through 11 is, is it provides the theological framework, the, the sense of who God is and how God relates. That, that's kind of the forms of foundation that gets us ready to understand how significant God's work through Abram, a single person is. So in a certain way, I mean, I, um, you know, the, the flood story does answer a kind of an implicit question. And the implicit question is, well, you know, if the world is such a, 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 a an ungodly, complete mess, why didn't God just bring it down and start over? Mm-hmm. And you know, the flood narrative says, well, God, yeah, God did. And that didn't solve the problem. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, we're, we're, we're just, we're back into the same old, same old. Um, but specifically to the flood narrative, um, yeah, the Hebrew's is a little tricky there. And I think our translations have incorporated this idea of the angry, punishing god into the way that we look at that particular story mm. so that um you know so, so uh, to not to get into the weeds too far in the hebrew um the you know the, there's really not a sense that god is is commanding the flood it's it's more a sense i would argue the hebrew gets a, a, gives us a sense that that god basically says i'm i you know I've seen it. I've seen everybody and how wicked they are and how infused uh, it is. And uh, I'm going to bring an end to it. And I read the Hebrew differently. And that that actually kind of is is not um, it it runs afoul of the grammar to to think of God kind of thinking that way. What 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 seems to be happening in that sense is that God takes a look at human wickedness and says, I know where all this will end. Um, so, so, in a sense, God accelerates. God just God doesn't so much bring destruction as God accelerates a, a disintegrating humanity and a disintegrating world, a whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that God gets involved in that and and brings everything back to uh, an original kind of chaotic uh, condition so that. Uh, God can rebuild and renew, and so you know, in in, in that uh, in Genesis nine, uh, where um, where Noah gets off the flood and sacrifices, there's a lot of creation imagery. Uh, you know, the, if if we pay attention to it, it's an the, area's way of saying God's recreating now. God's God's you know God's doing that. And um, we're going to see how this goes. And it, it lasts two chapters before <laughs> people are, are just defying God and, and looking up at that ceiling up there and saying, you know, I'll bet if, I'll bet if we built a, a tower in a city high enough, we could break through that, that dome where God lives and be up there and where we belong with God. And it just, it's, it's just wacky uh, mm-hmm. and hard. But, but all to say, I think it's significant in the flood narrative. So that God is not, in a sense causing the violence, God is uh, accelerating um, the violence. And I think significant in this is that um, there's no mention that God is angry in this. Uh, Matter of fact, it's in the flood narrative where the first emotion is attributed to God. And that emotion is not anger at the flood it's grief so we're not told that god is angry in this flood narrative we are told that god is grieved. you know i am you know i am beset with sorrow that i've created human beings it so humanity's sin it's a mystery but if we're reading the story humanity's sin affects God in a profound way. And it's not in a way that causes God to lash out in anger. So in other words, the flood is an expression of God's grief rather than God's anger. And and for me, that changes the whole calculus in in how we see that particular story.
0: So you're saying we kind of need to step back when we look at this narrative. Instead of seeing it as like a God who's like really angry um, and ticked off and he's like, well, let's just drown everyone. Um, it's more of a God who's grieving um, the fallenness in man and like all the brokenness that like, man is causing. Um, and because that he's accelerating their demise. Like, what is it? That's the thing. I'm like, well, what do you mean by accelerating? That's what I was a little confused Yeah.
1: About. So it, it, it's more the sense that um, and, and we'll, we'll see this ex, uh, more explicitly and clearly stated in the rest of the Old Testament. But in a sense, God is giving them over. To you know, to the results of their own sin. So, so there is a sense that it, it's 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 um, it's ambiguous, but there is a sense that God's involved in the flood. So, it, you know, God's not, in a sense, God's standing back in a way, um, and so everything that that God's doing is is kind of apart from and down. But God in, is in some way. Um, participating in the destruction of the earth through the flood, but God is not, but the flood is not caused by God. So, you know, putting those two pieces together for me, um, kind of tell, it it tells me that, that, that God is, is just saying, all right, um, let's, let's just get this, this thing over so that, so that I can make something new.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. Um, Thanks for that, Dan. And I'm glad we spent some time on that because it's like one of the first like big questions we have with regards to like Old Testament violence um, is like looking at the flood and what's going on here. And I think your view here is super helpful when we're looking at that. Um, So how else in like Genesis, like, do you see like God approaching his interaction in the world? Um, and like how is that going to help shape your view of divine violence as we keep progressing like beyond the flood narrative
1: you mean in genesis particularly yeah sure yeah well you know it, it's interesting to me that um uh god is never said to be angry anywhere in genesis mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. god participates as in the flood but think of sodom and gomorrah which is a it, it, it uses language that's reminiscent of the flood narrative. Uh, God looks down and and God sees man. This 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 place over by Sodom and Gomorrah, man, that's a mess. And and you know, creation, in a sense, is 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 crying out to God, saying, "Do something." Mm-hmm. You know, expanding a little there, but um, so so. Uh, it, Significant to me, uh, what, what happens in Genesis? Uh, so we've got that Sodom and Gomorrah, and we've got other instances in which God is involved in violence. But we've also got this developing friendship between uh, Abraham and God. Um, and and they, there's, there's a pattern in that relationship um, that, you know, in a sense, they're each, each getting to know each other. Uh, and knowing not so much in the intellectual sense, but the way we get to to know another human being. I mean, this just kind of relational connection to the point that um, when God is um, thinking about, which it's really interesting. So God is pondering. I wonder if I should tell Abraham what I'm getting ready to do at Sodom. Mm-hmm. Um, and God decides to share with Abraham. Um, which means, I mean, think think of the people that 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 you go to when you want some input on a big decision.
0: Yeah, they're
1: they're usually not just casual friends. They're people that you have have really learned to um, to trust, to value, and so there's something e- extraordinarily elevating about humanity that God takes this human being and says. Um, here's what I'm thinking of doing. And Abraham comes back and says, you can't do that, God, if there's, if there are innocent people there. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, there's this back and forth between God and Abraham. Um, And, and where Abraham is saying, God, if there were 50 people there, you, you wouldn't destroy that city, would you? God says, well, no, I guess not. I wouldn't for 50. And, and they have this conversation where God actually responds Mm -hmm. to the human partner. Uh, who's saying, God, please don't? Um, I know you better than this. You're you're not going to destroy the innocent with the guilty, so on and so forth. Um, so it makes one wonder. In subsequent expressions of God's violence, where the human voices were that were that were saying to God, God, um, just want to kind of give you a, some input from your friends. Please don't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you see Moses doing this in a way uh, in, 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 uh, in the Pentateuch. God's saying, you know, I've had it. You know, the golden calf incident. The golden calf uh, and God is saying, you know, uh, we're still on our honeymoon. And, and uh, you know, you're, 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 you're committing adultery on me already. You're you're turning away from me already. And God is, you know, God is angry. And he says he says to Moses, okay, I'm 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 quitting these people. I'm gonna start again with you. And Moses, says, wait, 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 God. Don't know. <laughs> you know, I know who you are. That's that's not consistent. And and in a sense, Moses talks in, talks God down from the violence. And so there's so many, and that's not the only time. So there's so many ways that this this sense of uh being in relationship with god both elevates and dignifies who we are as human beings and um as covenant people it it seems to me also places on us the um the obligation to to pray and to intercede and to uh just ask god um to, to help move, uh, human beings and human societies to a place of peace, uh, rather than, ra- rather than destruction.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that, Daniel, um, just thinking about, like, being in a relationship with God elevates, like, who we are and our status is, like, what it means for us to be human. And, like, and seeing, like, how we live our lives and, like, things like pursuing peace. Like, it seems like there's, like, this even, like, greater good when we walk in a relationship with God. We start to, like, pursue peace and see it as a good thing. So we have Genesis. Um, I'm curious now, We're looking when looking at the Exodus, We obviously there's a lot of things you can look at here. And one of the famous ones is the Ten Plagues. Um, it seems like God is bringing, like, violence on the people through these different things. And most notoriously, um, the last plague was the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt. So when you look at Exodus, like <clears throat> when you're looking at like your view of like divine action and violence, you said like in Genesis, God's never angry at, at anyone. How's it going to impact what's going on in Exodus?
1: Yeah. Well, again, yeah. In Genesis, God's, God uh, reacts violently and judges. Mm-hmm. But is not said to be angry when God does so. Matter of fact, the first time that the Bible... Attributes anger to God is when God calls Moses, and hmm. Moses keeps trying to say, oh, "I can't do it," <laughs> and he keeps making up excuses. And after four of them, God it says, "God got angry," <laughs> and and God's God's anger uh actually is expressed in not in God saying, well, "All right, Moses, I've had it with you, out of here, I'm going to go somebody else." But God says, "No, I got your brother Aaron." um Last excuse, I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> So God is just absolutely committed to the relationship. But, you know, so we get into Egypt, and, and, and that's a toughie. Um, that, that is tough. And so there are, there are these, these three, actually four, significant expressions of massive violence on the part of God in the Old Testament. So, and the the Exodus being the, the second, of, uh, uh, the third one is is the uh, the invasion of Canaan, and then there's a there's a uh, uh, a story about Sennacherib besieging besieging Jerusalem, and, and God wastes the the entire Syrian army. <clears throat> but so when I look at, <clears throat> excuse me, when I look at the the plagues. One of the things I notice is that there is a refrain all the way through the plague narrative. Um, Actually, there are two. One of the thread is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. We're told, we're told both things.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And then there's another thread. And, the, th- the other thread is, then Israel will know that I am Yahweh. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. And actually, there are more times when God says, the Egyptians will know, than there are times when God says, I'm doing this so that Israel may know, that you may know. So, um, to make it simple, it one of the issues that, that that the narrator brings to our attention very early in that story is that God is pretty much an unknown even to his own people after centuries of slavery in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, when God says, all right, Moses, go tell them that, that the, the God of your ancestors is going to uh, release them. Uh, Moses says, well, well uh, who should I tell them you are? <laughs> So God enters in to a world of well-established deities. I mean, the, the, the gods of Egypt who oversee this kind of uh, oppressive Egyptian order have been worshipped for centuries. They're well-established. E- Egypt is the, alt, you know, Pharaoh is the alpha male. I mean, the, the very quintessence of human defiance. And 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 Pharaoh has created this counter world um, that that enslaves and subjects and oppresses and is so very different than the the world that God wants. So there are some some ways that the biblical writer wants us to think about what God is doing in the Exodus. Um, So I, I say that because this refrain, then they will know, then Israel will know, then Egypt will know. Um, tells us something significant about what God is doing. And that is, I'm doing this so that people will know who I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, God, nobody knows who this God is. Uh, and, and you've got a God of slaves stepping into a well-established, ultra-powerful society. And, and you see it at the beginning. Pharaoh just says, you know, well, why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to your God? So what we see happening in the plagues is God demonstrating that God has the God controls the God controls the creation, not Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. God takes the very elements of creation and that, that Pharaoh claims to control. Uh, and that Egypt claims to master. And God takes those very forces um and and throws them up against Pharaoh and Pharaoh increasingly and his people cannot cannot counter them um to the end point where God says um first you, you blot out the sun uh Pharaoh I mean the references there to solar worship on the part of of, of egypt Egypt um and then the killing of the firstborn uh, which is is an awful thing, but it it communicates something. Mm -hmm. Pharaoh does not have the power of life and death that he thinks he does. God does. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, this... And and so why would would God harden Pharaoh's heart? (laughs) Well, um, you know, being a king means... I make my own decisions, and I have the power to carry them out. So it seems to me God is 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 just brilliant in saying, "Oh, you think you think you're hot stuff, you know? You think you think you control even your own decisions? I'm just going to take your ability to make your own decisions, and mm. I'm I'm going to control it. Yeah. And I'm going to and and if you read the 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 plague narrative." I mean, there are a number of times where, where, where Pharaoh kind of decides, okay, I've had enough. I've let these folks out of here. And God steps in and hardens him
0: mm.
1: because God, again, God, you know, the, the first step is for people to know who God is. And it strikes me, reading against the whole grain of the biblical text, that if God could have done it any differently, God would have. But in a world of violence and power, uh, the only thing that speaks um, is violence and power. And it's hmm. kind of where I go with that.
0: Yeah. So with the plague narrative, you, you're willing to say, like, like, there is, like, God, like, commanding or causing violence but it's not just like senseless violence for no reason like there's something really really important here happening where you talking about what i think was super helpful was uh, framing the context of like looking at like egypt like right before the exodus is a place where where, like yahweh isn't there like no one believes in him like even like the jewish people at the time don't really know a lot about who god is um And what these plagues are doing is they're kind of establishing his presence in a world full of these other, like, deities um, who can be claimed to do this or that. And it's really, that's what's going on here. And we look at, like, why would God command, like, things that happen that seem, like, so terrible? Well, there's a really good reason. And it's exactly what you're talking about right here. um, when We're looking at a godless land in Egypt and, like, God establishing his presence and showing who he is through these plagues.
1: And God wants... God wants the the people at the center of power, and the people who are being abused by power, both to know who God is. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that's that's just a key God's. So so God, I think you put it. You you allude to it well. I mean God's God is not capricious. God's violence is not just because God got angry and decided to "Ah, I've had it. You're out of here. Mm-hmm. Burn yeah. you up. Make you all crispy critters. You're done. Uh, but but God's God's violence is strategic, and it it has a purpose. Mm.
0: I I think that's helpful for people to understand. Like it's not just like when we look at like what hap is happening, and maybe you want to say like in Ukraine or whatever of like senseless killing, but killings. But like there's a lot of purpose here in what's happening. Um, Yeah, I think that's super helpful. So we look at the Exodus. um, That's the second. The flood's the first. And the third big problem you talk about, and I think this is the one that's brought up the most, is what's going on with the Canaanites. So there's a lot of different passages where, you know, it talks about like killing the Canaanites, leaving none alive, driving them out of the land, all kinds of stuff like that. So a lot of people may like morally, like with their intuitions, find this like abhorrent. Um, And so like, where do you go with this, Dan?
1: (laughs) Well... Again, uh, um, as it will become abundantly clear and probably already has, let me restate again. I don't have a a hard and fast answer, and I don't think scripture leads us in that direction. So, you know, anywhere we go with these, we've got lots of opportunities for people to say, yeah, but um, (laughs) and and that's, I think, what scripture calls us to do. Let's let's talk about this together but anyway here's here's where i go in a nutshell so um beginning in exodus uh and, uh and on through numbers um the language that god uses to so so god's going to bring the israelites into a land um Because they've got to be for God to do what God wants to do to renew creation. uh, God's got to have a nation that's settled with a land. So the land will be renewed. The people will be renewed. So um, God is involved. uh, And God needs to bring. And this is the whole thing with Abraham. God's going to bring. I'm going to bring you to a land. And that's where this is. That's where this renewing work is going to happen. I'm going to renew the world through a people, through a family, and and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But you're going to have a land. I got to do it with a land. So that is the thread of scripture that God. Um, I mean, that's the refrain theologically that God continues to say, "I'm bringing you into the land," uh, and the the language that God uses. For the indigenous inhabitants, the Canaanites, is, and I will drive them out. I will expel them. Um, which, by the way, um, is what God, there's a little interesting um, kind of aside in Deuteronomy 2, where God talks about how God has brought other peoples, the Moabites and the Edomites, into their lands, and mm-hmm. and and gave them the ability to displace their people. So it's it's kind of like Israel knows they're not the only ones. God in some way is in some way beyond our comprehension is somehow involved in, you know, the lives of nations and peoples. But to say that that language of driving out and expelling in Deuteronomy, uh, it becomes it, it's a different language. Then God's talking about wiping out um, uh Devoting to destruction. However, there are lots of ways to to uh, talk about the Hebrew. So when you go into Joshua, the languages we wiped them all out, and mm-hmm. and nobody was left. We beat all the kings. We captured all the cities. Yay us! And you get to the end of this kind of conquest, and it, it ends in in chapter twelve of Joshua with this list of thirty one kings and. You know, and and these statements that we took the entire land and nobody could resist us. And then you get chapter 13. And God says to Joshua, well, you're old. And uh, there's still a lot of land that Mm -hmm. you need to take. And you need to start taking that land and driving out. And the language of driving out comes back. So, I would say, first of all, I mean, that is such a huge whiplash in perspective. What do you mean? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and then you move into that older language that God has, has used prior to Deuteronomy about removing and expelling and driving out. And for me, you know, it, it, it's so jarring that it it prompts readers to look back at all of that, wiping out and say, take a look at that again. Mm. Um, Maybe it didn't really happen exactly that way. And uh, that's where, and when you begin to explore that question, what you realize is that in the ancient Near East, when people talked about conquest, they used that language of exaggeration and wiping out. So in a sense, if you're going to tell a story about how you took a country, you always talk about wiping out the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that to say that that a lot of that language of wiping out probably even the biblical narrative wants us to recognize as as customary military rhetoric, and we, we still have it going on today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generals spin their victories, and they 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 just kind of uh, you know dismiss their don't talk a lot about their defeats. I mean, we wiped them all out. We you know we're making big. I mean, mili- military language of victory is a lot different. I mm-hmm. mean, it just. So, now, in a sense, so, so, so the, you know, it's kind of good news, bad news. I mean, the good news is, um, probably this, this language of wiping out isn't, it doesn't express what God really intended to do with the people. So in other words, I think there's good reason for then reading that and saying, you know, that's military rhetoric. There are reasons that, that it's there. And that rhetoric does some things that are important for Israel. Like, you know, uh, for example, uh, presenting in no uncertain terms that God, God conquered the land, not Israel. The land is a gift um to israel and and god is able to give that gift by right of conquest but probably the way god was was really working was driving out so the 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 good news is i don't think god's genocidal in in that particular text that you know the kind of not good news is that god is still involved violently in pushing people out Mm -hmm. Um, and the testimony of the old testament is that takes a long time. It takes a long time, all the way up through the reign of David and Solomon.
0: So, what you think, then, Dan? Um, this is super helpful. You've done a great job communicating. Thank you. Is that, God isn't necessarily saying go kill everyone and like kill them all, even leave no one behind. Da, da, da. But he is saying like to the Israelites, you need to push out the Canaanites. Um, this is your land. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So, so in both. In both of those sections, so that, again, there are two just really different depictions of how Israel took the land, and th- the thread is God, God, God was the one who did it, mm-hmm. and Israel kind of came in, and and their was their their uh, part was to you know to do that too. So God was driving them out, and the people were to driving out. the people were to drive them out, and you see that all the way. Through Joshua, and then when you get to Judges chapter one, you have a a, a, even another view of that, where you have a a tribal, tribes and groups of tribes taking lands, and some of them are not really very successful. And the tribe of Dan is not successful at all in pushing out uh, the people, and they end up leaving the place where God assigned to them and going and taking their own city in in in. Way north of where they were supposed to be, so it's it's just a lot more of a complex picture. Mm-hmm. But the whole the 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 theologically, the, the, the piece is God that that is consistent is God gave this land, and God um, and God overcame the inhabitants of the land so that Israel could dwell there. Um,
0: okay, that's that's super helpful. Um. One thing I wonder then is looking at this idea that like God helping the Israelites to overcome this land to push them out is that something like ethnic cleansing? Like you know, we we put a lot of modern labels on things, um, especially in light of like post like the atrocities of the Holocaust of like genocide and, and ethnic cleansing and whatnot. Like God is like it seems like commanding a people group to be pushed out of a land. Um, and if that's the case, like isn't that morally wrong? Like how do you like, like sense of that?
1: Yeah. I agree with you. I have problems with that. And I would and I have used the term ethnic cleansing um, yeah. to to talk about that. Um, so I, and I don't know that I I have any I mean it is. It 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 I don't like it. I don't li- I like I don't like where that goes, but on the other hand, um, that's what scripture really plainly is saying so i've got to deal with it in some way Mm -hmm. um and and i'm not the only one so um so the and i would say the critique of that in a sense happens within the book of joshua itself and again without getting into the woods too far um the first three battles in joshua at jericho i and Gibeon. Are all elaborated in great detail, and uh, before the battles are narrated, we uh, we encounter there. There are there are three stories that kind of give an up close encounter on an individual level mm-hmm. um, with Canaan. So Rahab, the Canaanite, Canaanite prostitute, um, is spared. Uh, from destruction. Uh, even though God makes it very clear, don't let any of them live. So the Israelite spies allow Rahab to to live. Uh, and it's just a, an incredible story. Um, you know, this is a Canaanite prostitute and she's acclaiming the supremacy of Israel's God and God's mighty works just like Israel. Uh, and then the second story, Achan, uh, uh is a is a, a pedigreed Israelite, one of the good guys and mm-hmm. he ends up you know doing a, a, a horrible sacrilege um worthy of deep judgment and God commands him and his entire family to die mm-hmm. uh, and and they end up looking like piles of rubble just like the the Canaanite cities. And then there's a third where the, where Gibeonites, tricked Joshua and the Israelite elders into making a peace treaty with them. Um, And all I'll suggest here is, um, the question we ask is, why do we have those vignettes? And my answer is, before we read these accounts of people being killed, we actually meet some of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are these these stories humanize both the Israelites and the Canaanites. And we see Canaanites acting like Israelites, and we see an Israelite acting like Canaanites. And one of the main things you need to be able to do to kill a person is to see them as less than human.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And conversely, one of the ways that, um, you know, leads to peace is actually seeing and recognizing the humanity of, of your enemy. Mm. So, so, you know, there's a sense, all that to say there's a sense in which, and I'm, I'm just really glossing over what, what's going on, but there's a sense in which even, we see this thread even in these kill them all accounts where we are prompted to recognize the humanity. Mm-hmm. of those that we are driving out uh, and to see that they're, you know, they're just as human, they, they, um, they can praise God and be a part of us and we're okay. Um, and that's all to the goods, which really, I think, um, in its own way is meant to raise the kind of discomfort that you allude to. Um, yeah, this shouldn't happen. It's ethnic cleansing, right? Mm-hmm.
0: right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. These are human beings. Mm-hmm.
0: I like how you're like, this is just something to wrestle with. Like, this is where the text leads you um, as a faithful Christian. But then, yeah, we have these questions like, look, well, this seems like ethnic cleansing. And what do we do with this? Like, that's a tough question. And, like, you got to wrestle with it. It's not like there's an easy answer, and you can just go home and sleep well at night knowing everything's just completely fine. Everything's done, and theology's the project of theology is complete. Like there, right. There's more answers that need um, to be done here. So it's helpful. You're talking about like the Israelites pushing the Canaanites out of the land. We're not having God like um, command, like the, the genocide of them and killing everyone, man, woman, child, baby and whatnot. It's so, like, what do you do with passages like Deuteronomy seven, which seem to suggest that God is commanding them to like destroy all the Canaanites, like man, woman, and children. Like, how do you exactly see that when it's like God speaking? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I, again, God, God's putting on a number of hats in in this whole narrative, um, and this is again, this is the military God. This is the God who's saying, um, you know, I'm gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna take this land, and you're gonna help me do it. But um, if you read that command in Deuteronomy seven very carefully, you'll notice a. a a disconnect in the command so Mm -hmm. you know so wipe them out you know and and make and then just wipe them out period don't make any covenants with them and don't give your wives to their sons or their their wives to your sons so if you read that carefully and and deuteronomy is, is a is a profoundly rich theological document it's kind of the, theology in the form of law, uh, and it's it's doing some really sophisticated things. But when you read Deuteronomy carefully, it's like, well, wait a minute. If you wiped them all out, why do you need commands to uh, don't make covenants and mm-hmm. and and don't intermarry? That doesn't make sense. I mean, you don't need those commandments. And and I'll just say at this particular point that. Um, that suggests it's 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 the theology of the command it's 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 the rhetoric of the command that says you know this commandment is not perhaps directly involved in trying to say white people out it may be a rhetorical way of saying you need to keep your distance from these people
0: mm. That's super helpful. Thanks for that, um, Dan. So what I'd love to now is maybe we talked about like, you don't think that like this is advertising like um, a full killing of all the peoples. And you talked about that. And like, that's why there's still commandments of like, well, don't intermarry with them and things like that, because like, God knows, like these people aren't going to all be killed. Um, but we do have a view where God is commanding like something like a war where he's going to push these people out of the lands for, for Israel to like, establish their place so i'm wondering what do you think of a view such as like providential errancy so that's like you look at like greg boyd's view where maybe like thing scripture is just getting things wrong like god didn't actually command the killing of like these people or maybe even driving them out um but like there's a providential reason like god allowed humans to err uh so what do you make of something like that
1: yeah. Well, thanks, man. That's another big one. So mm-hmm. yeah. I, first of all, I have a problem with any assumption that says um, Moses misunderstood God. Mm. Moses's filters were so thick in terms of his own context that God said, God said, drive them out. And Moses heard, wipe them out. I, yeah. I, you know, once once you go down that route, I find that that's that's problematic mm-hmm. for me um providential or not uh, um, you know so so who who else misunderstood well a lot of people it turns out you know who who else interpreted wrongly and did correctly and how do I know and and I mean there are all kinds of arguments pro and con so that that's one problem I have the second problem is that this particular uh, Boyd's particular perspective and and most of those that are out there basically you um, basically reconstruct the history and context historically and then build theological conclusions off the history. Mm. So, yeah, so it was a violent world. So the way we explain these violent images of God is that, you know, to simplify it, is that, you know, that's the way people in their culture talked about God. In, in violent terms. So, you know, in the case of Josiah, for example, or Deuteronomy, this is Neo-Assyrian military rhetoric kind of in, intruding its way into the consciousness of, of, you know, the people. So don't worry about that. You know, that's just cultural stuff uh, that doesn't speak about God rightly. Don't, you know, you don't need to deal with it. It's too simple. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's an end around and yeah. and it, it, it's it's using historical reconstruction as the platform for theological reflection. When I would go back and I, this is why I, I, I go with a literary or a canonical this, you know, encounter this vision, you know, step into this world. This is how God chooses to communicate truth. And it's messy and it's it's got lots of things that you're not going to like. Got to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And you know the last piece is you know one one of the problems that um, a lot of contemporary readers have on this violence about divine violence is it it, it is the contradiction. I mean, well, this just doesn't look like Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to to remember that the earth, that that's a modern problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um based on our own categories of epistemology, and and uh, it wasn't a problem for necessarily, I mean, the contradiction wasn't a problem for a lot of the early church people, or even for people in the New Testament, who it was part of the story, you tell the story, this, and they understood, this story tells us who we are. Um, a lot of the church fathers said, I don't think we can I don't think we can use this in our teach in our classrooms, <laughs> you know, in the literal sense. So we'll just have to transform it into an allegory and, and and get the spiritual truth out of this. But, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a modern problem. The the contradiction between mm-hmm. the Testaments on, on the matter of God's violence. So,
0: yeah. That's helpful, Dan, um, saying that, like. Like the Bible's messy. Like it's not like there's gonna be like these perfect answers, and like, or if there's not, we should just try to like almost like get around it, um, and try to like have to not have to worry about it at all. But like realize we have to step into the messiness, step into the world of the Bible and understand everything that's going on. Like I have a friend that's reading Augustine right now, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, what is Augustine saying in City of God? Like that's crazy." And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, it is. But you gotta step into his world and understand where he's coming from." Um, and I think you have to yeah. say something similar about like the divine violence. So. That's
1: great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so maybe the last thing to leave you off with here is you hinted at this, like there's this dude named Jesus, you know, and he's kind of important. Um, how do we view biblical violence in light of like the life and teaching of like Jesus?
1: Yeah, that's great. Great question. I'm glad you came around to that. And, and it's, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And, 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 you know, we, we, we just want to be like Jesus. I mean, really, um, we want to have Jesus's heart. Um, and we want to walk the, the, the path that Jesus set for his followers. So um, I'm, I'll, make a, I'll make one observation, which I make in the book, which is that in the Old, in the old Testament, God works at the center of power. Um, God works with predominantly through leaders and kings and people who have power. And God works in a sense within the system. In the New Testament, God actually inhabits the periphery you know, a, 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 a peasant woman, a peasant family under uh, European colonial domination. Um, and, and so, you know, what we see of God on the periphery where God is not having to, you know, be enmeshed in all of the systems of power. I mean, in a sense, when, when Jesus, God shows up on the periphery of society in the person of Jesus, Um, God is basically, I I would say, able to say, this is who I really am. This is this. I am now free to show you, um, who, you know, the fullness of who I am. Um, and, and so that's the, the, the big takeaway that I get from the teachings and the, the ministry of Jesus within the context of the biblical canon is that um, we just have to be anti-violent people. I mean, our, the, let me put it this way, that our default orientation is, uh, you know, sometimes we need to use violence and, you know, let's just do it and, and put God's name on it. Um, and, and the church through thousands of years now has been, I would say, has been quick at many times to endorse violence in the name of God massive violence. And I think what what Jesus challenges or what the New Testament challenges us to do is to say, no, your default, um, your default position should be don't engage in violence. In other words, that's my orientation. recognizing through the whole of Scripture and from the Old Testament that maybe, Sometimes violence may be necessary for the, the accomplishment of a greater good, um, but our orientation should be: um, let us, you know, let's be non, let us oppose violence in every way that we can, and in every instance that we find ourselves in, mm. and only only endorse violence when it, it seems that there's no other way to prevent a greater destruction or a greater evil.
0: Mm. Well, that's really well said. Thanks for that, Dan. And I think it's so helpful, as you said, we, we need to finish thinking about Jesus here, um, the fulfillment of everything happening in the old Testament. And that's a great place to start to wrap up here. So Dan, thank you so much for coming on today. I've really enjoyed this. And there's so much to think about here. Um, with the old Testament violence. And I, I love your approach. I just want to say that because oh, I think you. that like, sometimes I think people come in and it's like, Hey, here's these different views. Like you can say it all happened. You can say it's a just war. Um, you can just deny it and be like probably just like great board. And you just want to kind of say like, let's just like take this slowly and like, look at like the narratives here and what's going on. Look at what's happening before and after and during. Um, and yeah, I just think that's super helpful. So thanks for that. Dan, I really appreciate your approach here.
1: Well, oh, thank you. I appreciate uh, I appreciate those words of encouragement, which really are are uh, really mean a lot. Because when you stick your neck out there, it's 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 uh, it's uh, it, it's really encouraging to have folks say, "Well, you know, I'm I'm glad you did that." So it, it's been a real pleasure to uh, have this conversation and uh, appreciate uh, your good questions and interaction.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that, Dan. And yeah, do you have any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here?
1: Um, Yeah, well, uh, just uh, pursue peace. Mm. Pursue that's peace. That's I mean, yeah. a great
0: um, thing to do. Yeah,
1: in, in in whatever way that we find ourselves in whatever context, pursue peace.
0: Mm. That's great, Dan. Um, yeah, that's that. Thank you so everyone for coming in today. I'll leave down a link below where you can... Um, see what up uh, with Dan and follow his work and whatnot. And that's that. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming on. This is Here in Apologetics. If you're new, I always encourage you to leave a like, uh, subscribe, all that fun stuff. We really appreciate you our your support. And if you value what we do, you can consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash hereinapologetics. You can support for as little as a dollar a month, and that support goes a long way. So thanks for that. And that's that. Dan, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and your time. Um, thank you. And, yeah.
1: A Have a good
0: one. Everyone. Thanks. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. Have a good one, everyone. God bless, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.